Good evening, everybody, and thank you for coming to the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. Tonight, we're going to be studying the November Revolution. We're going to be reading from yeah, the October Revolution by Joseph Stalin. We're going to go over some of the decrees issued by the Soviet government after the revolution and some statistics about the uh, Soviet state. Uh, and then we're going to watch a short video about the November Revolution. And just as forewarning, this uh, is referred to as both the November and the October Revolution due to a difference in calendars uh, used in Russia and some uh, and a good majority of the rest of the world at the time. So during this presentation, you may see it referred to as both the November Revolution and the October Revolution. It's referring to the same event. All right. The October Revolution by Stalin. The most important of the events which hastened the October uprising were the intention of the provisional government after having surrendered Riga to surrender Petrograd, the Kerensky government's preparations to remove to Moscow, the decision of the command of the old army to dispatch the entire Petrograd garrison to the front and leave the capital undefended, and lastly, the feverish activity of the Black Congress in Moscow, headed by Radzenko, activity for organizing the counter-revolution. All this, coupled with the growing economic disruption and the unwillingness of the men at the front to continue the war, made a swift and efficiently organized uprising inevitable as the only way out of the existing situation. The Central Committee of the Bolshevik Party had already, in the closing days of September, decided to mobilize all the forces of the party for the organization of a successful uprising. With that in view, the Central Committee resolved to set up a revolutionary military committee in Petrograd to secure the retention of the Petrograd garrison in the capital and to convene an all-Russian Congress of Soviets. Only such a Congress could succeed to power. The preliminary winning of the Moscow and Petrograd Soviets, the most influential in the rear and at the front, was an indispensable part of the general plan of organization of the uprising. Acting on the instructions of the Central Committee, Rabachi put, the central organ of the party began openly to call for an uprising, preparing the workers and peasants for the decisive battle. The first open clash with the provisional government arose over the banning of the Bolshevik newspaper, Rabachi put. It was shut down by order of the provisional government. It was reopened in revolutionary fashion by order of the Revolutionary Military Committee. The seals were removed and the commissars of the provisional government were sent off. That was on October 24th. Uh, on October 24th, commissars of the Revolutionary Military Committee forcibly ejected the representatives of the provisional government from a number of major government institutions, which resulted in the latter coming under the control of the Revolutionary Military Committee and the disorganization of the whole machinery of the provisional government. That same day, October 24, the entire garrison, all the regiments in Petrograd, decisively went over to the Revolutionary Military Committee, with the sole exception of some of the military cadet schools and an armored car battalion. The provisional government showed signs of irresolution. Only in the evening did it dispatch shock battalions to occupy the bridges and succeed in raising some of them. 
The Revolutionary Military Committee countered this by sending sailors and Viborg Red Guards who removed and dispersed the shock battalions and occupied the bridges themselves. With this, the open uprising began. A number of our regiments were dispatched with orders to cordon off the whole area around the staff headquarters and the Winter Palace. In the Winter Palace, the provisional government was in session. The passing of the armored car battalion to the side of the Revolutionary Military Committee late at night on October 24th hastened the success of the uprising. On October 25th, the Congress of Soviets opened, and to it the Revolutionary Military Committee turned over the power it had won. And Early in the morning of October 26th, after the bombardment of the Winter Palace and the staff headquarters by the Aurora, and after skirmishes between Soviet troops and military cadets in front of the Winter Palace, the provisional government capitulated. The moving spirit of the revolution from beginning to end was the central committee of the party, headed by Comrade Lenin. Vladimir Ilyich was then living and hiding in Petrograd in the Vyborg district. On the evening of October 24th, he was called to the Smolny to take charge of the movement. An outstanding role in the October uprising was played by the sailors of the Baltic fleet and the Red Guards from the Vyborg district. Owing to their extraordinary courage, the role of the Petrograd garrison was confined chiefly to rendering moral and to some extent military support to the vanguard fighters. Jay Stalin. Yeah, just because I'm a stickler for, uh, I guess, details, can uh, can the November and October revolutions be quickly described in, in like three sentences? What makes the difference? Just for general knowledge. Thank you. Uh, the October and November revolution refers to the same event. Uh, essentially, it's the difference between the Julian and the Gregorian calendar. So the Russian calendar system at the time was ahead by several days. And so it took place in October on the Gregorian calendar and in November in the Julian calendar, I believe. Maybe I'm thinking about because there was a bourgeois revolution and then a communist revolution, correct? Yes, there was a bourgeois revolution and then a communist revolution. But the bourgeois revolution is just not being discussed in this class, really. It's just focusing on the October and November revolution. I want to make a correction. Russia was using the Julian calendar. Oh, thank you. I had it backwards. My bad. And they, they switched to the Gregorian calendar on February 1st, 1918. And they lost 13 days. Uh, yeah, it, it mentioned the Baltic fleet at one point in there. Um, it, was the Baltic fleet something that originated with the Bolsheviks or was that something that the Bolsheviks had like organized uh, within the military ranks that was a part of the government from before? Yeah, it was already in the Tsarist army, you know, the Baltic fleet. Yeah, uh, the communists and Bolsheviks, they simply had members who were within the Tsarist army that essentially helped them take control. What was the Bolsheviks' um, place in the Duma at this time? Um, I thought it was something like they won support in the Duma to kind of have a um, majority. Um, and that's when they decided to make the um, decision to go for the November-October revolution. No, it wasn't the Duma, it was in the Soviets. They waited to get the majority in Petrograd and Moscow. Once they did, everything was ready to go. 
Yeah, and further elaborating on Comrade Point, um, it, it, a lot of liberals like to point to the fact that the um, that the Bolsheviks didn't have an absolute majority within the within the Soviets. But if you include the left SRs and uh, the and like the left Mensheviks who were in coalition with the with the Bolsheviks, they had a majority within the Petrograd and and Moscow Soviets. So like this idea that they you know illegitimately overthrew the government that that's that's nonsense yeah what was um stalin's main role during the october um, november revolution i feel like every time we hear a history of what was happening it kind of focuses on lenin and trotsky definitely it was lenin and trotsky 100 nobody knew the name of stalin at the time except the inner circle of the party but everybody knew about trotsky and lenin And um, as a matter of fact, I need to tell you something important, okay? I have this book here. It's called The October Revolution by Stalin. And it was done in, uh, it was published in 1933 in the Soviet Union, okay? And it's about the same article that Xavier just read. There's a whole paragraph of that article that was removed from Stalin's uh, collected works, okay? And it's important because uh, I'm going to read this. It's important, comrades. All practical work in connection with the organization of the uprising was done under the immediate direction of Comrade Trotsky, the president of the Petrograd Soviet. It can be stated with certainty that the party is indebted primarily and principally to Comrade Trotsky for the rapid going over of the garrison to the side of the Soviet and the efficient manner in which the work of the Military Revolutionary Committee was organized. The principal assistants of Comrade Trotsky were Comrades Antonov and Podvoisky. Anyway, that's to show that uh, Stalin himself recognized the role of Trotsky in the October Revolution. Um, Trotsky was the leader of the Soviet, of the Petrograd Soviet. And um, upon his initiative, of course, with the agreement of the Central Committee, uh, the Military Revolutionary Committee was created. And that's extremely important. Okay, so um, uh, Trotsky did a lot of bad things in the future, but at that time, he did really good. Let's let us not forget that, comrades. I do like a lot of Trotsky's writings from that little two, three year period, I think it is. Um, but, but when like suggesting uh, like a reading material for like younger uh, people who come interested in communism or Marxism, like I've been tempted to uh, suggest uh, like uh, I think it's a reply to Kautsky by Trotsky uh, with like obviously uh, the notes uh, to not go beyond that because I, I don't know. I haven't just because I'm worried that someone will. Well, I think it's easier to read than Lenin in the in the con in the fucking American context. Um, but uh, obviously, there's the danger of them then associating Trotsky with being the good and following down that path. Is which why I haven't. So I guess I'm kind of a question if that that would be like a advisable thing to do, or if I'm thinking right. Just one thing I, I want to say: uh, the comrade is right. Is uh, Trotsky is very easy to read, and at the time. Uh, in the party, when he was still so famous and people liked him at the time, his nickname was The Pen. 
because he was excellent writer, okay? An excellent orator as well. He, he spoke very, very well in public. I'm not entire. I honestly have not read much Trotsky. Um, I, I really haven't. Uh, so I don't really know how good any of his works would be. Um, I find it hard to believe that there's not something that there's anything he wrote about that somebody else hasn't wrote about. And it can be dangerous to send people towards Trotsky uh, just because Trotskyism inevitably leads to counter-revolutionary behavior. And so pointing people in that general direction can be a bit risky. Uh, but that being said, if it's a more seasoned comrade and it's a, uh, and you know that they're not going to fall down the hole of Trotskyism, it is important to recognize historical materialism and the dialectical role that people in history play. Uh, people are both positive and negative at different points and have both positive and negative uh, attributes. And so uh, you have to put everything in its proper historical context. Uh, Trotsky was a good military leader at times. However, as an ideologue, he was not so good. Uh, he was a good orator, but uh, in terms of socialist planning and understanding social communist theory, he failed at that. Uh, he helped the Red Army. Later on, he worked with fascists. Uh, and so there really is like you have to look at the dialectical role that people play in historical development. I, I guess I just wanted to add, uh, I think what I'm thinking of is on terrorism and communism that. I can't remember specifically. It's like 10 years ago, um, but uh, that seemed to kind of just be Lenin, but in like for dummies kind of thing. Um, I think most of what he wrote probably, probably before, but definitely after that was just like his own ego. So, so yeah, I, I, I think I kind of second the, uh, it being a more like intermediate level, at least like for seasoned people, um, not people who are still like questioning whether socialism is good or not to begin with. Uh, the comrade is right. And um, also, Trotsky was known a little bit later on as the champion with fake muscles. That's how they called him. Because, you know, he, uh, he was a lot of fake about himself, you know, like theatrics and all that too. And another thing I want to say, um, a few days before the revolution, before October 24th and 25th, uh, just a few days, you can see that in uh, John Reed, the 10 days that shook the world. A few days before, John Reed had interview with Trotsky in his office, okay? And then, um, among other things that were okay, but then Trotsky goes crazy. He, he says, yeah, what we want is the United States of Europe. Now, that stuff has been said before, and it was criticized by Lenin. United States of Europe, a total nonsense. He was obsessed with international revolution when revolution is done country by country. Once... The countries have done revolution, then they can unite. To the citizens of Russia, published on October 25th slash November 7th. The provisional government has been deposed. State power has passed into the hands of the organ of the Petrograd Soviet of Workers and Soldiers Deputies, the Revolutionary Military Committee, which heads the Petrograd proletariat and the garrison. The cause for which the people have fought, namely the immediate offer of a democratic peace, the abolition of landed proprietorship, 
workers' control over production and the establishment of Soviet power, this cause has been secured. Long live the revolution of workers, soldiers, and peasants, Revolutionary Military Committee of the Petrograd Soviet of Workers and Soldiers Deputies. So this was, uh, I believe that this is the first uh, decree that was issued by the newly formed Bolshevik government. Um, and one thing that I want people to pay particular attention to here is the cause, uh, this uh, second paragraph here, the cause for which the people have fought, what they are demanding, the immediate offer of a democratic peace, the abolition of landed proprietorship, workers' control over production, and the establishment of Soviet power. Decree on Peace, published the next day, October 26, November 8th. The workers and peasants government created by the revolution of October 24th through 25th and basing itself on the Soviet of workers, soldiers, and peasants deputies calls upon all the belligerent peoples and their government to start immediate negotiations for a just democratic peace. By a just or democratic peace for which the overwhelming majority of the working class and other working people of all the belligerent countries, exhausted, tormented, and racked by the war, are craving. A peace that has been most definitely and insistently demanded by the Russian workers and peasants ever since the overthrow of the Tsarist monarchy. By such a peace, the government means an ah, excuse me. An immediate peace without annexations, i.e. without the seizure of foreign lands, without the forcible incorporation of foreign nations, and without indemnities. So this is a small portion of the full decree because unfortunately the full decree was a little bit too long. If we were going to read through the full text of each of the decrees that we're doing, it would end up taking too much time, unfortunately. But this gets across the just meat of what they were saying in it. And so here we can see some of the effects of the Soviet government leadership. Um, we can see that life expectancy increased dramatically under Soviet leadership. There's a, there's a drop right here, but look at the year. That's in 1945. Um, and so after World War II, that was when life expectancy seriously skyrocketed. Um, and so you can look here and the lowest points on this graph are periods when they were in the middle of war and very bloody war. World War One, the invasion of their country by Western powers, World War II. Uh, and so you can see just how severe of a toll that took. This is why they wanted peace. And yeah, because of them, life expectancy shot up. Not only that, but infant mortality rates plummeted. Uh, the quality of uh, food, health care, maternal care, it caused the infant mortality rates for under one years old in Russia under the Soviet government to just completely crash down. Uh, the, the numbers are a little bit hard to read, but you can see if you uh, look in close enough that the point where it really starts to drop down, like uh, the point uh, one over, yeah, right there. That is right around when the October Revolution was. And so it immediately started taking a huge downturn. So the Soviets, long term, they improved overall life expectancy, and it took them a little while to get a really dramatic increase in life expectancy. But the effect that they had on infant mortality rates was immediate. Decree on land. So this was another major demand of, uh, that was listed in the uh, proclamation to the Russian people. One, landed proprietorship is abolished forthwith without any compensation. 
the landed estates as also all crown monastery and church lands with all of their livestock implements buildings and everything pertaining thereto shall be placed at the disposal of the volost land committees and the uz uh, soviets of peasants deputies pending the convocation of the constituent assembly Three, all damage to confiscated property, which henceforth belongs to the whole people, is proclaimed a grave crime to be punished by the revolutionary courts. The UZ, the UZ uh, Soviets of peasant deputies shall take all necessary measures to assure the observance of the strictest order during the confiscation of the landed estates, to determine the size of estates, and the particular estate subject to confiscation to draw up exact inventories of all property confiscated, and to protect in the strictest revolutionary way all agricultural enterprises transferred to the people with all buildings, implements, livestock, stock of produce, etc. Uh, and so we can see here, they immediately address the issue of land proprietorship and the workers and peasants owning the means of production. This is a step in that direction. Um, and what we're seeing in these decrees is a consistent trend among socialist countries. One of the first things that socialist governments do after coming into power in basically every case is strive for peace and establish land reforms. Those are always two of the first things that socialist governments do. And we can see the effect that socialist planning has on the economy. Uh, right here in this graph, you can see that after the Soviet Revolution, particularly after the five-year plans where they were able to industrialize in under a decade, the GDP of the USSR skyrocketed. And then at the 1991 counter-revolution and the reintroduction of capitalism, the economy of Russia completely crashed. Uh, so this kind of shows both that socialist planning was able to outperform the previous mode of production within the same country, and it was able to outperform capitalism when that was, when that was introduced later on. So if we're looking and analyzing it within the context of this country, we can see the practicing of capitalism and socialism and the different effects that that has on the economy. And socialism is the clear winner. Uh, because aside from the fact that it out that Russia's economy was the best under socialist planning, they also industrialized in a fraction of the time of capitalist powers. Industrializing in under a decade is not a small accomplishment, especially when they were being invaded by 14 different countries placed under economic sanctions, coming out of World War I, then getting plunged into World War II. The fact that they were able to industrialize so quickly under such harsh conditions is a testament to how strong Soviet planning is. Uh, we can see that trend reflected in other countries, such as the DPRK and Cuba, which have managed to not only survive, but prosper under just as harsh, if not harsher, conditions. And even the CIA acknowledged that by the 1980s, Soviet calorie consumption was not only on the same level as Western countries, but they had a healthier diet. So all of these things about ha ha ha, communism means no food. Even the CIA acknowledged that that was wrong. Uh, because they, here, I'll read from this statement. This is a declassified CIA internal memo. This was not published to the public. It was an internal analytics memo that was uh, declassified. I, and it was declassified back in 2008. 
American and Soviet citizens eat about the same amount of food each day, but the Soviet diet may be more nutritious. According to a CIA report released today, both nationalities may be eating too much for good health. So you see there, they're trying to spin it uh, so that, oh, they're both bad. The CIA drew no conclusions about the nutritional makeup of the Soviet and American diets, but commonly accepted U.S. health views suggest the Soviet diet may be slightly better. According to the Central Intelligence Agency, an average Soviet citizen consumes 3,280 calories a day compared to 3,520 calories for the American. The average daily calorie intake in the Soviet Union is grain products and potatoes, 44%, sugar, 13%, dairy and eggs, 11%, Fats and oils, 17%, meat and fish, 8%, and 7% other products. The American consumes daily grain products and potatoes, 26%, sugar, 17%, dairy and eggs, 12%, fat and oils, 18%, meat and fish, 21%, and 6% other products. Americans eat more meat and fish, more sugar, more dairy products and eggs, and more fats and oils and less grain than the average Soviet citizen and consume more calories. Generally held nutritional standards suggest individuals need fewer calories, less meat, less sugar, and more grain to stay fit. So this is the chief propagator of anti-communist propaganda just begrudgingly acknowledging the fact that the Soviets had them beat. You can hear the tone while reading this, that they don't want to be saying that the Soviets were doing better than the U.S., but they still have no choice. How come nobody mentions the starvations and the famines under the Tsarist kingdom? And I mean, like, its entirety. Can somebody just even elaborate? Because I know there were some, but that's basically it. Like, come on. Come on. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, under the czarist uh, system, there were regular droughts and famines. Uh, it was something that was consistent throughout the history in the region. And the Soviets actually ended them being a commonality, which was also true in China. Uh, in China, they had almost yearly droughts and famines. And then after the socialist system took power, they pretty much ended how frequent they were. You know, I've always kind of wondered about the Polish-Soviet war and its relationship to, like, the revolution. I know that, um, you know, the Russian Civil War was, like, 22 to, I want to say, 25 or 26. And the Polish is around the same time. Was they Were they directly linked? And what was the cause of the Polish and Soviet fighting? That's all. Okay. So, uh, first of all, the Civil War started in uh, July 1918. Okay, and it ended in 1922. The very last one to leave was the Japanese. 100 years ago. Um, Putin just talked about it not long ago. Okay, now the, the Polish, uh, Polish-Soviet war, it was this. Uh, it was in uh, the summer of 1920. So towards the end of the civil war, kind of, you know, there was still the French and the British in uh, Crimea pushing, you know, north, kind of like uh, what's happening now. The Polish attacked the Soviets. They were pushed by the French, as a matter of fact, even they had French officers. De Gaulle 
you know, the famous De Gaulle, he started over there, okay? And uh, they attacked. The Soviets beat them real well at first. And then they said, you know what? Let's go all the way to Warsaw, because if we do, then Germany will fall, fall as in, you know, revolution-wise, okay? So they did, but then they got beaten right by Warsaw. 90. because It was a mistake, actually, that Lenin agreed upon later on. It was a mistake to do this because the, the Polish people became patriotic. You know, they didn't really go with the revolution thing, you know. They just um, felt all the Russians invading, you know. So it was a little bit of a mistake. It could have worked, though. And then they made a peace, which was called the Treaty of Riga. 1921. It was a bad deal for uh, for Russia, for the Soviets, though. But le uh, starting later on, when uh, you know he moved uh, the border west, he got him back uh, the line of the Curzon line. He got all that back, thanks God. 1939. I just have a book suggestion for Comrade. The title is Late Victorian Holocaust. And the author is Mike Davis. It goes into the history of famine in the latter part of the 19th century and the first couple decades of the 20th century. Um, and it's very good for context if you're interested in that sort of thing. That's all. I find this interesting when we're talking about, you know, you look at the success of the socialist system in the Soviet Union, right? the communist system. And the one thing that always strikes me is like that graph you show, right? The solid, steady economic growth where you're building on the success of last year, you're improving it and the stability uh, and the health of it, right? This comes from uh, people who are setting up a class in North Carolina, at least, trying to help students be better capitalists. And they said, well, get this, the goal of capitalist economic policy, both by government and by banks, is to, quote, produce a stable economy that grows year on year. And I didn't say this, but I'm thinking in the back of my head, well, gee, that sure sounds like a planned economy now, doesn't it? Or a planned economy can actually make those plans. Whereas if you're a capitalist, it's all a bunch of random gambles. And of course, it's all going to blow up in your face before it can ever work. So this is maybe something we need to start pushing hard is like, you know, capitalist economics is too wild to control. Solid, steady economic growth that benefits everybody. Need a little bit of planning. And uh, I would like to just briefly add to that, that we already have centralized planning in our economy to an extent uh, because the economic uh, developments are decided by a small group of people in a boardroom uh, who plan out the way that the economy is going to operate. There are people in the stock market who are called market makers uh, because the shares that they trade will control the price of the stock market, uh, basically. And so uh, when Whenever anybody has an issue with central planning, the difference between socialism and uh, capitalism is not necessarily that one is centrally planned and one isn't. It's that one is centrally planned by the working class and one is centrally planned by the capitalist class with no input from the working class. I'm sure people noticed on the end of it, um, it has the dip. I think this is on the, um, uh, the mortality rate or not the mortality rate, the life expectancy rate and the GDP. There's the dip after the counter-revolution, 
but around the mid 2000s, there's another swing back up. Um, is there something that happened uh, in Russia that maybe Putin did or happened in the Russian Federation that caused that? Because I, I noticed that and I'm just curious about it. Okay. Uh, so honestly, I do not 100% know. Uh, however, one thing that I could try that could be a possibility that um, after the counter revolution, like immediately after it wasn't, uh, it's referred to as specifically gangster capitalism, uh, what got reintroduced, because essentially for a period of time, the Russian economy was ran by the equivalent of is essentially what was going on there for a while. And it cannot be overstated how bad it was. The counter-revolution in the Soviet Union brought child prostitution to Russia. Uh, that, that is how bad that was uh, for the Russian economy. And so basically there was a like long a period of several years which was extremely unstable even for a capitalist system. And then uh, by the mid-2000s, they would have had time to somewhat stabilize. And now that they had already gone through the process of economic liberalization and had uh, gone back into capitalism, it essentially uh, stabilized as much as capitalism can. And Russia had already positioned itself as a world power. So it was, uh, it also, of the life expectancy rate, that is also due somewhat to medical advances as well as an improved economy. Uh, the socialist planning did have an effect a major effect on the Russian life expectancy. However, medical advances also had an effect. Uh, so after things stabilized, the life expectancy was able to rise back up. And um, yeah, sorry. Uh, yeah, that about would be my best answer for that. Putin na uh, nat naturalized a lot of the energy industry and in particular gas. So they were able to stabilize their economy by the government intervening and, and nationalizing it, um, which, as you can imagine, was kind of the, the big the start point of um, the disconnect between the Russian Federation and, and the West. You know, uh, Putin started off as uh, like a right hand man to Yeltsin, um, but you know, Yeltsin, a drunken ape, and and when Putin became uh, the leader, he, you know, he actually had designs to try to stabilize his country. Yeah, um, as far as I know, and maybe Comrade could weigh in on this, but um, as far as I know, I'm pretty sure like the Bolsheviks uh, program was like nationalization of the land um, prior to the revolution. But then like once the revolution happened, they kind of just um, divvied it out into like private individual plots among the peasantry. So I was just like wondering like if that was correct or like why that happened. Was it for like PR reasons or? You know, nationalization of the land, what they meant is that the land would be public, but everyone would have a plot, okay? They wouldn't exactly own it, but they would own the harvest. And it's in the soul of the Russian peasant. Uh, the land forever in the Russian history the mujik, you know, the peasant always thought that the land was everybody's land. But the fruit of the land is what you put into it, you know. So if you work the land, you get the harvest. But it's still not your land. Okay. That was the idea um, of the Bolsheviks. Right. And uh, I would also like to add to that.
uh, two things. One, it's important to recognize the distinction between personal and private property. Uh, private property is essentially privately owned but publicly worked means of production. Personal property is something that a single person owns. It's like the toothbrush versus the toothbrush factory. Uh, the second thing is the difference between ownership rights and ursifractory rights. Uh, Refractory rights is a kind of more uncommon term, uh, but basically ownership rights means, so say there's a plot of land, ownership rights would mean you own the land and everything that comes from it. Ursifractory rights means you do not own the land, but you have the right to work that land and own the product of your labor. Uh, it could also be used in the context of a factory. Ownership is owning the factory. Ursifractory right would be owning the right to use the factory and own what you produce. Uh, so those two things are kind of important to understand when talking about the land reforms under the Bolsheviks. Yeah, I was just going to say about the, why it's not talked about, the, like the famines during the Tsar regime. I mean, I think at least to at least to a degree, it's like a propaganda thing. It's framing issue. And, um, and if you look at the before and after stats, it's like talking about earlier, it's a very steady, like stark difference get to the positive um, direction. And uh, if, I think if you want to look at, um, to look at the other side of the dialect, like capitalist management of like famines in Africa, um, like they say like Mao murdered people and Mao did make some blunders for sure um, that caused some famine type issues. But uh, when capitalists um, do it, it's, it's, you know, that's not their fault or whatever. Uh, and look at the Irish potato famine was not really a famine. Like there was no shortage of food on the island, it was uh, more profitable to ship the grain to rich people in England. Um, and that's what, because of free market capitalism was like the logic back then. And the, like, yeah, just the, I, I think like we're programmed to think a certain way and to be, believe certain things by the American, you know, education system and all that. So I, I think it's deliberate um, that, uh, that it's not talked about like that to a degree. Yeah, and I think uh, Comrade can ask about um, uh, 2000 and Putin. Yeah, Putin was a very progressive uh, compared to Yeltsin um, and who ransacked the economy to the, the second economy, which were just gangsters. Um, I had a question. Um, I hear this a lot and I hope someone could parse this out. Um, anarchists like to bring up, oh, well, you know, Lenin dissolved the Soviets. Okay. So could someone uh, kind of parse that out? Why did he do that? I know there was really good reasons that he had to do that. So Now, w what happened is uh, you heard, you know, in the, in the reading about the Constituent Assembly, okay, that uh, was a, a uh, program of everybody, including the Bolshevik party, right? But once uh, power was taken and uh, all power was given to the Soviets, there was no more need for Constituent Assembly, okay? So um, it had already been planned to be conveyed uh, in early uh, in uh, early 1918, and uh, the electoral list was based prior to the revolution. So it's like uh, there was a lot of Mensheviks, a lot of right SRs, uh, Bolsheviks, but not as many as 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 we needed to at the time, and left SRs and uh, Bolsheviks were in the minority. So Lenin said, "Hey, the hell with it, cut it," and they did. Okay? And uh, all power was to the Soviet. Why go back to a bourgeois democracy when we already won 
the real democracy, you know? So that's what happened. Yeah, this video is uh, by the uh, Finnish Bolshevik. Uh, you might have heard of him. He has a YouTube channel. Uh, he's definitely one of ours from Finland, okay? And uh, I, I found it very interesting, that video. I think you will also. Uh, takes 14 minutes, and it gives you a pretty good uh, idea of the history of the revolution itself and just prior, okay? The October Revolution is an extremely important event in world history. It was the first successful workers' revolution. But how did it all happen? In this video, I will give you a brief overview of the complicated history of the October Revolution. The Russian Empire was a totalitarian police state, ruled by an absolute monarchy. The country was very backward economically and culturally. Average life expectancy in Russia was about 35 years. Only about 20% of the population knew how to read. The workers and peasants lived horrible lives, without the 8-hour working day, minimum wage laws or basic work safety regulations. There were many large strikes and protests, but it was not uncommon that the police would shoot at the demonstrators and kill the strikers. Despite how big the country was, there was a constant shortage of farmland and also constant famine. This is because most land belonged to the wealthy landlords and rich peasants. And because of technological backwardness, only the softest and most fertile soil could be used, and this severely limited the amount of available farmland. In 1898 the Russian Social Democratic Labour Party is created. Among its founders are people like Vladimir Lenin and Julius Martov. This was a Marxist party that wanted to overthrow the monarchy and bring about socialism. However, during the course of the struggle, there's a lot of disagreement about when this goal is to be implemented and how. In 1903, there emerges a split in the party. Two factions emerge. The Mensheviks, led by Martov, and the Bolsheviks, led by Lenin. During the years, although Lenin and many others first anticipated that the two groups could merge again, the split ends up worsening and the two factions become separate parties the Russian Social Democratic Labour Party Mensheviks and the Russian Social Democratic Labour Party Bolsheviks. The main differences between the two groups were the following. The Bolsheviks wanted an organizationally united party of serious revolutionaries, while the Mensheviks wanted a more loose, reformist-type party. Both parties agreed that the next course of action was to overthrow the monarchy and carry out the so-called bourgeois democratic revolution. This would make Russia a capitalist parliamentary democracy. However, the Mensheviks argued that the class to lead the revolution was the bourgeoisie, the capitalist class. The bourgeois class served this function in the French Revolution. The Bolsheviks disagreed. They thought the capitalists couldn't be trusted to carry out the democratic revolution. In Russia, the capitalists were weaker than in France. They allied with the monarchy and feared the workers and peasants. In fact, the Bolshevik leader Lenin argued that the Russian proletariat was much stronger and more developed than the French proletariat of the late 1700s and therefore should lead the democratic revolution and not merely support it. Lastly, the Mensheviks didn't think Russia was ready for socialism. In their opinion, the workers could never take power in Russia until after a long time of capitalist and parliamentary development. Even though the debate about the workers' revolution and socialism would only come about later, this attitude relates to the Menshevik position that workers shouldn't lead the democratic revolution, but only support the capitalist class against the monarchy. 
1905 there is an attempt at the democratic revolution. There are massive protests all over the country, mutinies in the army, and the people organize public meetings called Soviets, or councils, which get together and discuss what to do. The revolution eventually fails. It won some democratic liberties from the Tsar, but those liberties would be constantly under attack by the monarchy afterwards. This revolution is seen as a dress rehearsal for the later revolution. In 1914, World War I begins, and launches Russia into chaos. The economy is ruined by the war. There is a shortage of food, and large amounts of the population are drafted to fight in the war, mostly workers and peasants. The war is seen by many people, especially the socialists, as an unjust imperialist conquest, where millions of poor and working class people from different countries had to die for the profits and wealth of the capitalist and monarchist governments of their countries. The attitude towards the war ends up splitting the international socialist movement, however, the so-called Second International. Many parties initially opposed the war, but then chose to support their own governments in it once the war started, in order to protect their country from the other imperialist powers. Lenin, Rosa Luxemburg, and other revolutionaries saw this as horrible treachery. Surely, if everyone only supports their own imperialist governments in an imperialist war, then it doesn't do anything to stop the war. In fact, it only renders support for the war. They called for turning the imperialist war into a class war. Friendship between the workers of the various countries and unity against the capitalist governments of all the warring countries. The debate between these two political lines led to the splitting of the Second International. In February 1917, the Tsar abdicates and the Russian monarchy is overthrown. This leads to the creation of the Russian Provisional Government, consisting of the Capitalist Cadet Party, the Socialist Revolutionary Party, better known as the SR, and the Mensheviks. The Bolsheviks initially gave so-called conditional support for the provisional government, meaning that they supported it to the degree that it carried out the democratic reforms and other policies demanded by the population. However, it soon became very evident that the provisional government was a failure. The provisional government refused to carry out land reform, which was necessary to prevent famine and to reduce the land shortage, because it would have meant going against the power of the landlords. The provisional government also refused to impose stricter regulations on trading and the economy, which would have been necessary to prevent economic disaster, because it would have meant going against the capitalists, who greatly profited from the war and the shortages. Lastly, the provisional government supported the war. They advocated a war to a finish, meaning war until they won. But it became very evident that Russia was losing the war. However, the provisional government was still committed to fulfill the treaties and agreements with their allies and therefore still chose to continue Russia's involvement in the war. Clearly, a supposedly democratic government, with quite a few self-proclaimed socialists in it, such as the provisional government was, should not act in this way. The Bolsheviks were quick to point out that the provisional government acts exactly like the Tsarist government, which also sided with the landlords, also sided with the capitalists, and started the imperialist war. The provisional government was merely continuing the Tsarist policies. Um, so it's very interesting, uh, and uh, you know, I find this to be a large point of contention among, I wouldn't say among Marxist-Leninists, but among other people. And so I was hoping that uh, Comrade could explain the different conditions between World War I 
and why the policy of the Bolsheviks in World War I was so radically different than the policy of the Bolsheviks during World War II. So, yeah, uh, basically, uh, World War I was a clash of imperialist blocs, okay? Now, World War II uh, was, in a sense, at first, also a, a, a clash of imperialist blocs, okay? But there was the new dimension, fascism, okay? In other words, uh, bourgeois democracy was preferable to fascism, obviously, for us. So, of course, Stalin uh, attempted to ally with bourgeois democracy, you know, England and France. And um, he tried for a long time, for six years. But when they uh, showed no intention to ally with Soviet Union, because it was their main enemy, actually, even more than Hitler was, and they were trying to push Hitler towards the East instead. So Stalin did a pact with Germany, okay, to stay out of the war, not an alliance, but non-aggression, okay? And he still wanted to, to be allied with, with France and England, okay? Time came two years later uh, when uh, Hitler attacked, okay? And then it was a time when the West, France and England, had to ally with the Soviet Union because they were still at war against Germany. Okay, so uh, it was totally different 90. from one. This is going back to a question someone said earlier, I believe, in regards to uh, the land question and uh, the Bolsheviks and how um, initially when they took power, they basically gave the land to the peasants, away from the landlords to the pe peasants that were living there as opposed to uh, their original stance, which was nationalization, collectivization. And essentially it was just, um, I would say a, a policy of pragmatic uh, democratic response. They knew that this is what the peasants wanted and they knew that they had to give this to them essentially, at least at this juncture. And obviously later on in 28, I think, they begin the process of collectivization which was a, the, the, the true Bolshevik-Leninist um, approach. But um, yeah, and, and what really made this difficult was or really forced the hand of the Bolsheviks was that the SRs uh, were all about um, giving the land to the peasants. They were essentially agrarian socialists, which I would say is essentially anarchists um, with, with their approach, you know, Kropotkin type stuff. I'm not overly familiar with anarchism, but um, I, I would say it falls more to that school of thought. Yes, uh, so it's 100% true. Socialism in the country came in 1928. That's when uh, peasants gonna work the land together in uh, Kolkos, okay? Before that, they worked the land uh, in their own plot that was given to them by the revolution, given, and yet it was still nationalized. It, they were not exactly the owners, but they had uh, full control of it. They could run it the way they wanted. Later on, it's, they run it together as a collective, okay? That's a difference. So at first it was no socialism. That's right. 
and writing it together allowed them to produce more, which is why it's such an essential key, especially at that time, you know, that century, you know, to, to grow more food, to feed more people, to be more prosperous, right? That's right. It's much more uh, uh, technically better to join and have uh, the tractors, you know, plow the land and all that, you know, instead of one small lot, plot, I mean. Uh, yes, so what did you say about refractory control or something? What that mean again? Usufractory rights are uh, essentially usage rights rather than ownership rights. So ownership rights is owning the land, owning the machine, whatever. Usufractory rights is collective ownership of the land or machine or whatever, but you have the right to use it and own what you produce on it. I just wanted to sort of add on to what Comrader said and, and maybe, maybe simplify it a little more. Um, you don't necessarily have to be, first of all, a capitalist to have private property. Basically, anything you use that you don't intend to sell, hat, mug, shirt, fence, whatever, that's that's private or um, sorry, that's personal property. But if if some person has is in a house, but then they there's a factory, right? That factory is there to like they technically own it on paper but they're there to use it to make money and that makes it um private property um making money is not necessarily the thing that makes it private but it's just something that you don't intend to basically use yourself if anybody has a clarification uh that's it thank you and in, in the meantime y'all covered a lot of this but uh the uh yeah a lot, a lot of land eventually ended up in uh, collective farms, and that process began in 1920 through 1922. Uh, the the term for them was SOVKAS, and they're still scattered around the former Soviet Union, but I think the only ones that are still operated as state farms are in Belarus now. Um, yeah, it's kind of sad. A lot of them are collecting rust and are full of empty houses now. Oh, well, bye. Vladimir Lenin returns to Russia from exile and puts forward his April Theses, a set of political proposals which call for the overthrow of the provisional government. The Bolsheviks put forward their slogans, down with the provisional government, down with the capitalist ministers, factories for the workers, land to the peasants, end to the imperialist war, peace, bread and land. In June, the capital city, Petrograd, nowadays called St. Petersburg, has municipal elections. The Bolsheviks achieve a massive victory, growing from essentially nothing to one of the biggest parties. The so-called defensist bloc still gets the majority, however. This bloc consisted of the SR party and the Mensheviks. Defensism meant that they supported the war effort. The biggest loser of the election was the capitalist cadet party, getting only 15% of the vote and losing its power as the biggest party. On July 1st, Russia launches an offensive on the front. This is known as the Kerensky Offensive, or the July Offensive. The war was going badly and casualties were mounting for Russia. The bloodthirstiness of the imperialists and the provisional government were very evident. On July 3rd and 4th, there are massive demonstrations and riots of hundreds of thousands of people in Petrograd. Among the demonstrators are armed soldiers, 
who have come from the front to demand change and revolution. The Bolsheviks urge caution and say that the demonstration should be peaceful and organized. They oppose an armed confrontation and say that they are not yet strong enough for a revolution. The workers and soldiers decide to bring weapons despite the advice of the Bolsheviks. But the Bolsheviks still take part in the demonstration to lend support to the workers. The workers and soldiers carry Bolshevik slogans. End the war. Peace, bread and land. There is a government crackdown against the demonstrators. Machine guns shoot into the crowd, leaving countless dead. The Bolsheviks are now seen as a major threat by the government. A warrant is issued for Lenin's arrest, and he is forced into hiding. The Bolshevik newspaper Pravda is repressed. Their printing plant and party offices are destroyed. This period of repression is known as the July Days. The provisional government restores the death penalty on the front against soldiers who disobey orders. The Bolsheviks lost a lot of their forces and many of their important resources. They begin publishing their newspapers under new names to avoid censorship. Despite all their difficulties, the workers now support them more than ever. The provisional government is exposed as a supporter of the capitalist elite and the imperialists. The provisional government starts forming stronger ties with the old capitalist and monarchist parties, especially the cadets, to make up for the support they've lost among the workers. In August, there is an attempted coup against the provisional government, called the Kornilov Affair. Kornilov was a white general in the Russian army, who wanted to institute a military dictatorship and strong rule of law to put an end to the chaos in Russia. In other words, this would have meant complete counter-revolution, end to the demonstrations, end to democracy, end to the reforms, and end to the working class movement. The railroad workers strike and don't transport Kornilov's troops. The workers and soldiers of Petrograd form armed Red Guard units and take up the defense of Petrograd against Kornilov. Kornilov's coup ends in failure. After the overthrow of the Tsarist monarchy, formation of Soviets had begun again in all large cities, but for the time being, their leadership would be predominantly Menshevik. In September, the Bolsheviks gained the majority in the Petrograd Soviet, and soon after in the Soviets of Moscow and other large cities. The Soviets function as an unrecognized secondary government, and they already carry out many of the important functions in the cities as the Russian government is breaking down. The Soviets even organized the defense of Petrograd. As the economy is in ruins and the war effort is failing, more people turn away from the provisional government and turn towards the Soviets. The 6th Bolshevik Party Congress had agreed that they should carry out an armed revolution. In October, the Petrograd Soviet creates a military revolutionary committee, Milrevkom. These kinds of special bodies are formed all over the country, connected with each Soviet in each city. The Menshevik and SR minorities in the Soviets oppose revolution, but the SR party splits into right and left factions. The left SR group sides with the Bolsheviks. The Bolshevik soldier organization takes over the Petrograd garrison. On October 24th, the military revolutionary committees occupy the telegraph, the telephone, and other important buildings. The cruiser Aurora, which is controlled by Bolshevik sailors, fires a shot to signal the beginning of the revolution. The workers and soldiers storm the Winter Palace where the provisional government resides. The same evening, 
there is a Congress of Soviets, where delegates from the Soviets from all over the country elect the new Russian government, a government elected by the Soviets of workers and peasants, the Soviet government. The October Revolution has taken power. This would lead to a civil war, where the capitalists tried to rescue their power. For 14 capitalist governments, including the United States, Great Britain, France, Japan, Poland, and many others, invaded Soviet Russia to destroy the Soviet government, but they failed, and the Soviet Union was created. The significance of the October Revolution cannot be overstated. It showed that a revolution by the ordinary people is possible. It showed that capitalism, in the end, is incapable of solving its internal contradictions. Even despite getting moderate leftists into the capitalist government, the policy was as imperialist, profit-driven, and anti-popular as before. The moderate leftists didn't improve capitalism, they were used by it. Only revolution stopped Russia's involvement in the World War, carried out land reform, dealt with the crisis of unregulated capitalism, provided education, housing, health care, and began the process of building a new economic model which would serve the needs and interests of the people, not the profits of the elites. I want to point out a few things that I think that we should take from this video, because as always, the point of learning history is to apply it to our present conditions. Uh, one of the reasons it's so important to study the October Revolution is because they did what we want to do, learn from people who were successful. Um, and so first off, I want everybody to notice the slogans that they used, peace, land and bread. They didn't win support by screaming about the dictatorship of the proletariat to every single worker and peasant who would listen. They didn't win mass support through Twitter arguments. They didn't win mass support by focusing on obscure issues that nobody actually really cared about. They won support through peace, land, and bread. Uh, the second thing is that by the time that the revolution happened, they basically already had power in a lot of places. They were fulfilling the role of the government in a lot of areas already. Uh, people look at revolution as a process of armed revolt. In actuality, a lot of it consists more of a process of taking control of the functions of government, such as communications, infrastructure, uh, regulatory planning, stuff like that. Those are functions that they would step in and fulfill. Uh, and this third thing is that they had support among the Russian military, not among the officers or generals necessarily, but they had support among the rank and file military. They didn't alienate veterans. They didn't alienate active members of the Russian military, despite the fact that they were imperialists, despite the fact that they were capitalists. And so this ultra leftist perspective of alienating and villainizing every single person who enters the American military is not only incorrect, it is a fundamental tactical mistake. How do you expect to seize power without support of the organized military force or at least a portion of it and without at least a significant amount of the rank and file soldiers? Uh, and so it is a very big, we need to build support among veterans. We need to build support among rank and file members of the military, uh, because that is a way that we can actually combat imperialism. Uh, actually, we can combat our own country's imperialism through organized rank and file workers, uh, rank and file soldiers. I mean, uh, that's the end of my bit.
as we're watching this tonight, I have a copy of the map during the Civil War showing the red flag at certain spots and the enemy. Guess what flag the enemy was? The same exact flag that this Russia has today. On the map, you see, I said, oh my God, this is an obvious thing that what happened in 1991 was a counter revolution, not a collapse, a counter revolution. And this map shows it, showing the present Russian flag losing spots on this map of Russia in 1917 during the Civil War. Yes, thanks again. Um, I don't usually talk this much, but I was curious after this last clip, can anybody give slightly more context onto why and how all these white Russian allies were able to, I guess, fail? Did they just not have their act together? Was capitalism not what it was, you know, could be at the time? Does any Can anybody just clarify where they all... I think that Mao put it best. Reactionaries are paper tigers. Uh, they look strong and vicious and dangerous, but in actuality, they'll fold under resistance. Uh, and, and so that's really a basic summary of it. Um, capitalism is weak. Capitalists are weak. They are unsustainable. It, it is something that when there is organized pressure from the workers, it will fail and it will collapse. Individually incompetent. I'm sure some of the white generals were competent, but as we saw from that video, there was stuff like railroad worker strikes that disrupted them, which can be devastating. Uh, yeah, mentioned the Kornilov uh, coup or affair or whatnot in there. And that was interesting. I really hadn't known about that before. Um, with how they described what Kornilov had planned to do, it almost kind of sounded like a proto-fascist that they would have had to deal with if the revolution had failed, which I think just kind of solidifies the idea that every fascist state is a failed socialist revolution. And in that case, it didn't happen. But I don't know if I'm right to think that. I would like to uh, add one thing to that. Uh, Comrade, I think, is the one who told me about this, so he might remember the person's name. Uh, but the person who Hitler took inspiration from for his ideology was actually a Russian who survived the October Revolution uh, in Moscow and was on the side of the whites and then uh, fled to uh, Austria or Germany or something like that, I believe. Comrade, do you remember? Uh, you had talked to me about that like a year ago, I, I think. Do you remember what I'm talking about? Yes, absolutely. And I'm glad you mentioned Kornilov because Kornilov it's kind of like the first time fascism appear on the, on the scene of history. Okay? Kornilov um, wanted to overthrow Kerensky because he thought Kerensky wasn't strong enough against the Bolsheviks. And the, when he tried his thing, the Bolsheviks went and saved Kerensky for one month, overthrew him later. But you can see now, here you talk about um, Rosenberg, uh, Alfred Rosenberg. He was a founder of Nazism. And yes, he was from the Russian Empire, 
and he was from one of the Baltic republics, I believe Lithuania or Estonia, but maybe, maybe Lithuania. And uh, when uh, the Bolshevik revolution won, his family and him and all that, they flew, they escaped to Germany. As you know, the Baltic republics are um, historically German, you know, that came there from Germany. Okay, so he flew, he, he went back to Germany and he founded the Nazi party. And a year later, Hitler joined that party. That party was founded by a white Russian, if you will, you know. Um, Russia had what is called the Black Hundreds. The Black Hundreds were the fascists in Russia. They were for the Tsar, okay? They were the fascists. So he was in, influenced by that, of course. Yeah, I read somewhere that um, it had the whites have won. Thank God they didn't. Uh, fascism would be a, a Russian word. Um, so that's interesting. And on the uh, how did they lose the Civil War? Um, it wasn't just that they that the Bolsheviks, um, you know, they 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 had military ties. They had ties with the workers. Um, they also had some ties with religion. And I was reading something about um, their early Kazakh um, uh, ASSR and um, its founda uh, founding. And it was kind of going through its own kind of provincial government at that time. Uh, that was sort of secular, but obviously had some um, ties with um, Islam. And uh, it's interesting that obviously more of the reactionary religious elements sided with the whites and a lot of the uh, whites that were Russian uh, went into those regions. But um, there was a communist Muslim party that would um, in those organizations or in those regions that would uh, side with the Reds, obviously. So they had a lot of ties in lots of different ways. And real quick, um, it was interesting they brought up the railroads. Um, I know in the United States, at least um, through some laws or maybe just through some uh, uh, formality, it's illegal to for the railroad, um, even though they're unionized, to uh, strike. Of course, they could still strike. Um, don't tell them that I said that. But um, it's just interesting that uh, what you could do when you can get the railroads to, um, you know, strike and not do things. Um, yeah, I just wanted to attempt to answer a question about why the white army lost. Um, from what I understand, like the white army generals were like super corrupt. And like I heard that the British government like sent them a bunch of like aid, like ammunition, guns, uh, boots and coats and stuff like that, to which the white army generals just like sold it on the black market. And uh, ironically, like. Trotsky ended up like buying it, buying all that stuff and equipping the, the Red Army with it. Um, and I think I heard that he like sent a public letter thanking them for that. Um, and also that um, like a lot of people who kind of thought saw themselves as, like neutral, like they didn't love the Red Army, but they didn't didn't love the whites. Like they said, like, at least like the Reds aren't going to like take my land away. So like I'm like I have better stakes fighting with them. Cameron mentioned earlier proto-fascism. So you might be interested in reading further on, on Marx discussing Bonapartism, which is certainly a, 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 a proto-fascism in itself. Um, you know, Marx wrote the 18th Premier of, of Louis Bonaparte, and he talks about how, um, how these military men will take power and how they utilize all the Lupin proletariat. So anyway, that, that, that's something that, that you might find interesting and some further information uh, on proto-fascism. And I also thought Xavier's interesting how you mentioned how, uh, you know, these white generals kind of fell apart, reactionaries or, or paper tigers. And then you have someone like Leon Trotsky, who was just a, like a bookworm who somehow led an army 
to, to, to win a revolution. So, you know, obviously if you, people believe in you and rally around you, it's a lot more than, than what the whites were offering. Yeah. And also to respond to, you know, the imperialist powers came and they helped in their own way, or, you know, they kind of supported the white wherever or the white army, wherever they could. And, you know, it failed part and parcel because of their like, um, diminishing support over time they realized as well that like hey this is not just us fighting in you know africa or somewhere where it's not organized like the workers actually are opposing us and just the general population as well you know not even necessarily all the um you know obviously the whole population wasn't bolshevik but they had massive support so it would have been a long drawn out battle had the imperialist powers stayed there in that time period you know they basically kind of threw in the boots or threw in the towel because they realized like now this is just not going to happen. You know, we're not going to win, but that's all. Thank you, everybody, and have a great night.